The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Andrew Foss. Uh, Andrew Foss is the author of The Bullies Trap, Bullying in the Workplace, which provides a comprehensive and provocative insight into the dynamics, impacts, and costs of bullying in the workplace, providing advice to the targets, bystanders, bullies and families, and friends of those who are targeted. He also answers questions about how bullying can be stopped and prevented. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Andrew. Thank you, Catherine. Well, as I understand it, you were a product of bullying in the workplace, which had devastating consequences, so I guess hence the book, and also you have a foundation now, which we'll talk about uh, later in the show, a nonprofit foundation uh, dedicated yes. to helping those who are uh, find themselves victims of bullying in the workplace, amongst other things. So let's start. What was your, I mean, obviously we'll talk about the book, but your own personal experience which motivated you to write the book? Sure. I, um, I, I, I think I offer a pretty unique perspective in terms of the topic because early in my career, I was called out for being a bully, uh, which was one of the most important lessons in my life. Uh, I've dealt with numerous bullying and abuse situations uh, during my career, and, well, Tucker, what was your job? What was your title? Why were you called out as being well, a bully? I mean, how, what well, were the? I, I, what's the context? I was, I was a, uh, the the youngest vice president in the company that uh, that uh, I worked for at the time, Loblaw Companies, which was Canada's largest re- food retailer, and um, and uh, the godfather of the firm. He was this, he, he was the executive vice president. Came into my office one day and indicated he had a major major problem and uh, described a young manager who, he didn't use the word bullying, but uh, he could have, uh, just summarizing all the things he said about this young manager, and he said, I'm totally perplexed as to what to do. And uh, being fairly cocky and aggressive, I said, well, you know, Bob, I'd fire the SOB. And he took a drag from his pipe. They smoked. They allowed smoking back then. And he said, "Well, son, uh, that's my problem. Is you're the SOB I'm talking about." So I answered with a, a, a meek O. Oh, and uh, thankfully, he thankfully he did not take my advice. But uh, but uh, so what happened? So did you talk? Me, did he talk about it with? I mean, okay, that's like the silence. Obviously, yes. dead silence. You're the guy who's been accused of doing the bullying. Now, what were you going through your mind? Like, what did I do? Or do you have any kind of insight? Well, no, I, 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 I knew because uh, in that environment, it was uh, pretty, pretty tough. And, uh, 
And I, I truly believe that that was the way uh, one had to uh, make a mark in the organization. What way? And, when you're saying bullying, progress. what did you you had to make your mark? Well, you had to... I, you know, I, I was I was overly aggressive. I um, I um, I didn't listen to people, and I was very judgmental and. Uh, and basically abusive in terms of people who uh, didn't uh, didn't fulfill uh, the expectations, and uh, was very intolerant of uh, of any kind of uh, of uh, misstep, and um, and uh, what uh, what this taught me is uh, is you don't motivate by fear. And respect is a far more powerful motivator. So you can be a very tough boss, uh, set high expectations, hold people accountable, and do it with the view of correcting a deficiency versus doing it to get the person out of of your way. Now, what about if we're looking at research, and I know you've done a lot of research and, and you cite a lot of research, statistically... Okay, you have the goals, you know, you hold people accountable, you don't bully them, you don't try to reign with fear so that they're yeah. terrified. Uh, is there research that supports that, that you can accomplish your goal without scaring people to death or they're terrified they're going to lose their job? And do they do better if you are, and we'll talk specifically about what one should do, not as opposed to bullying, to accomplish those goals? Um, is there research to support that, that people do do yeah, better? there is. Yes, there is, and uh, the research shows that people who are happy in their environment uh, produce at uh, something like 20% higher than those who are not. And, uh, but I can give you my own experience, and I've been in a, a general management position for uh, close to uh, 30 years and uh, responsible for the thousands of people. And I put in, wherever I've gone, I've put into place uh, what I now refer to as psychologically safe workplaces. And that, and, and, uh, that, those are workplaces that are free of unnecessary stress. And I have seen top and bottom line growth as a result of that. Uh, there's a Gallup statistic that shows that 70% of the North American workers are not engaged. And when you peel the onion back on that, the reason that they're not engaged, it, that fear comes out as the number one. Fear and of their boss. The number, fear of your boss and fear of uh, arbitrarily being let go. And the second thing that, and the second thing that comes out interestingly enough, and we're going to get it validated through further research, but it's people witnessing and uh, having to do things that fall outside of their ethical boundaries. Uh, Give us an example. I mean, that's a, you know, a statement, a general statement. In the workplace, give us an example when, and and not necessarily with companies, but... yeah, I'll give you two. I'll give you two. Uh, one is uh, Wells Fargo. Uh, they were charged recently uh, uh, in the city of uh, San Francisco, where they're headquartered, uh, be- 
with because the retail um, uh, the retail uh, banking uh, uh, side of the business were setting totally unreasonable quotas for new accounts, and they had a systematic way to get people to open dummy accounts to meet short-term quotas. So that's that's one uh, one uh, one example. The Has that been recent, resolved in the courts yet? Uh, no, not yet. It was uh, they were charged uh, something like a month, month and a half ago. Okay, so this is still uh, allegedly until it actually gets so, okay, sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, but uh, if you go a little further back, you know, you look at uh, Lehman Brothers, uh, Enron, uh, the whole mortgage uh, crisis. Um, where there was illegal, inappropriate activity taking place done by people sanctioned by the top. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, I right, assume. But you're kind of that, giving us examples, are you? I, these seem like examples where there is, was illegal activity and possibly illegal activity, let's say for Wells Fargo. But you mentioned earlier people are forced not necessarily to do illegal things, but unethical, which is different. So you know, what? well, it's 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 a combination of both, really, and um, and um, uh, the the most recent example is uh, is Volkswagen, and that the issue is is that people who were in the know did not come forward, and and uh, and. The question has to be asked is why they didn't come forward. And the reason is if they came forward, they would be retaliated against. Mm -hmm. That's my assertion. Mm -hmm. Well, I think whistleblowers do get a bum rap, or at least that's what you, I mean, that's what we've been privy to in the news and in some of these companies, but, um, you know. Absolutely, and I I, I experienced that because uh, I was a whistleblower late in my career. And um, and um, and I was retaliated against by the person who I blew the whistle on, and I went through eighteen months of sheer hell. I was able to resolve it, but others who are faced with that are not. Okay, so what? Let's just take your not, example then. Not, yeah. Yes. Well, uh, your well, example. Can you talk about this? Specifically, like what? What did you blow the whistle on, and how well, were you I'm, able I'm, to resolve yeah, I'm, it? I'm, I'm, I'm bound, bound by a, um, a non-disclosure on that. Oh, okay. Uh, but I can, but I can tell you what I went through, and I was, I was, uh, the the, uh, the bully tried to totally discredit me. I was followed by private investigators. My phone was tapped. My emails were hacked into. Uh, my uh, 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 associates shunned me. I uh, and as a result of that, I uh, lost thirty pounds. I had symptoms consistent with post-traumatic stress disorder. I got a had a, a serious case of shingles that laid me out for up for six months, and um, and that that was the impact. Uh, and I was devoting uh, all, most of my waking hours to dealing with this negative energy that didn't stop when I resolved it. I could not find closure. 
And that's what most people who are severely bullied face. After the bullying stops, they still live with it. It leaves a scar. So for me personally, I needed to find a, a method by which I could take the negative energy and turn it into positive energy. And I was fortunate to be able to resolve it, and and uh, that really drove me to uh, to uh, focus in on this topic. And the book is part of that. Uh, the book is 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 a method by which I can get the discussion and debate going on a topic that is rarely talked about. Uh, we see a lot of uh, of. Uh, of uh, incidences of school bullying, and very little on on corporate bullying, if you will. And uh, one of the reasons for that is the stigma attached to declaring that I have been targeted. And it also is the fear of bystanders to come forward and put their hand up and saying, I'm seeing a person abused here. And it should stop. Don't you think, Andrew, that also the financial uh, situation comes into play as well, which maybe it's slightly different than the school bully or bullying situation? People are terrified, talk about fear, of losing their jobs, number one. So, I mean... That, that, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and usually the, bully, the bullying doesn't stop after the person either quits or gets, gets fired. Because they, uh, in, in many instances, they're blackballed as being a disgruntled employee who was not loyal because they came forward. What about the and companies? You know, you're talking about companies, um, you know, this is uh, the companies who are doing the bullying and the ramifications of that. Do you have an, an example of, like, what any particular company that is psychological, does provide a psychologically safe workplace, the ones that are doing good work, good examples of not bullying. Yes, actually, actually uh, a good example is, uh, is uh, uh, the one I refer to in my book, uh, and, uh, and the company that I was a managing partner with, uh, Sharper's Drug Mart in Canada. And um, we were able to double the size of that business and, um, and uh, profitability and the, uh, the market cap uh, went up tenfold. Uh, so that's the one that I'm obviously closest to. But uh, another company that uh, I look at as a, uh, as a model is uh, the Marriott Hotel, Hotel chain. And, um, and when, when you look at that, uh, and uh, and analyze it, which I haven't done to a great degree, but the two key indicators uh, from my perspective are how the customer is treated and then how the employee is treated. And, and uh, the tenure at Marriott hotel chains across the border is they hire people and people stay with them. Mm-hmm. And they provide a, an environment where people can flourish. And their simple philosophy is they are treated the way the company wants them to treat the customer. So this stuff isn't, isn't rocket science. And it does, uh, it does um, 
uh, prove that a psychologically safe workplace uh, is, uh, or non-toxic workplace, uh, is a better economic model. You know, now, as you're talking about the Marriott, and I travel a lot and have stayed at all levels of Marriott's, you know, to the expensive resorts, to the, the less expensive ones, and I really do sense that from what you're saying. My experience in all, in their whole, you do feel, you, there is an atmosphere that's created, and this is not an advertisement for Marriott, but uh, I, I think I, you feel it when you, when you are, you, you know, the, the service that you get, the connection with the, the people who are waiting on you. Um, and I, I think that's, I, I would totally, I mean, that's the feeling as a customer, I would say. Um, so I'm not surprised yes. to hear you say that. Yes, and, uh, and, and in talking to the people and, and, and delving into their background and their experience with the company, they talk so proudly of their relationship with the organization. And and they're truly engaged. They are truly uh, loyal, and uh, and they are enjoying what they're doing because of the level of their engagement. So it is it is a great example. On the other side, uh, Amazon. I don't know whether you read the uh, expose on them in the New York Times. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, yeah, that was. Why don't you talk about that? Because that's kind of and devastating. If, yeah. if, if, if 25% of that were uh, accurate, then they would still have a major, major problem. Okay, so Amazon was accused of what? Let's, for those who haven't read Amazon the New York Times article. Amazon was accused of having a t- uh, totally toxic work environment. And the average tenure there is something less than a year. And people were uh, are so afraid uh, that uh, they're even able that they're 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 afraid to take a day off for fear of uh, of um, of, uh, of uh, being let go. Uh, do you think that has anything to do with the with the? I don't know what the demographics are, but you know, you talk, a company, um, and I'm, I don't know that this is true. Like the age of the employees. I mean, like let's say when you have a lot of young employees, millennials, and even younger or older to Gen X, they don't stay at jobs more than two years anyway, on the average. But um, does that? Have- well, it's interesting you say that because millennials um, um, are are finding a totally different environment to. Um, to what what I uh, uh, faced, and and that it, it was a situation where you joined a company and you stayed there forever. Yeah, no uh, one so does that today. Can I? I think I, I can say that. anybody does that today. But if uh, if uh, if you peel the onion back a bit, and again, uh, I haven't done an awful lot of research, but I've, I've done enough to know that the millennials are wanting to have more of a relationship and a longer relationship with an employer, providing that the employer can provide them with, uh, with growth opportunities and mobility. And, um, and, uh, and again, uh, that is just based on a small amount of research and, but it's something that, uh, that, uh, I'm working with uh, Yale University on to really understand 
how um, the workforce today thinks and feels. Because I would, and this is just, you know, obviously I'm just guessing, but it would seem to me some of these millennials are not necessarily leaving workplace situations because there's bullying, although that may be the case. They they themselves just, no matter what company they're working for or from, they just have a different way of engaging in the world. They just don't stay at places for long periods of time. They don't even stay in the same Communities or the same town. Well, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, but but I think the thing we have to look at is is their level of engagement. So so uh, and uh, Gallup polling indicates that seventy percent, over seventy percent, of employees in North America are not engaged. What about in and other countries? How do we compare? Actually, uh, we compare a bit better uh, because if you look at that uh, worldwide, it is uh, it's uh, it's closer to eighty percent that are not engaged. So it's a bit better, but seventy percent is still a huge, huge, huge number. And uh, and it's really understanding why they're not engaged. But if you go back to Google or sorry uh, Amazon, uh, their employees are not engaged because of the toxicity of their work environment where fear reigns. And, um, and it was interesting because Jeff Bezos, who's the CEO, uh, when asked about the expose, his comment was, that's not the Amazon I know. And so he, the guy's either oblivious to what's going on in his organization or he he has chosen that as his economic model, and uh, there was a further write up in this uh, the, in uh, in um, in uh, the Times uh, earlier or sorry on the weekend, and um, Jay Carney, who was uh, Obama's uh, press secretary up until uh, last year, I believe. Uh, he is now in charge of PR for Amazon, and he and Bezos were on a witch hunt to find out which of their employees talked to uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, New York Times, and uh, just adding to um, adding to uh, what uh, the Times initially Had reported. reported. So this is the report uh, from the New York Times, and it, I guess the, yes. it hasn't. The story hasn't hasn't been told yet. I guess, right? It's the just, full story hasn't been told. Yeah, uh, because it's emerging. Uh, but but the but the and it is emerging, and uh, you know I think uh, ultimately uh, uh, we'll find that uh, there is a bit of, uh, if not uh, a lot of, of credibility to what the story initially reported. So how do we, because we don't have that much time left, and obviously people can get the full story from your book, The Bully's Trap, but a psychologically healthy workplace. I like that title. It sounds great. Specifically, two or three things that one needs to do to create that, because it's you know, it it sounds like wow, that's nice, and everybody's going to be happy, and production's going to, you know, soar. But uh, to implement that, not so easy, or is it? 
Well, I, I, I believe it is because I've done it. So it's not all that hard. Number one is to understand what is going on in, in your workplace. So I'm, I'm talking now to boards of directors and CEOs. And do you really understand what is going on in your environment? And is there a ticking time bomb that if it explodes, it's going to expose a culture that is... Uh, toxic and um, and 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 threatens your uh, your brand and uh, and uh, reputational uh, uh, value. So what number you- one is do, is do a, a a full assessment in terms of what's going on. If what would you say are- to? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and then second, if there are uh, things uh, that create unnecessary pressure or stress, what are they? And what can you do about that to reduce it or eliminate it? So an example of that is if people are afraid of losing their, their jobs, and there's an arbitrary uh, and subjective performance uh, system in place where people can be let go at will or at the whim of a manager, that's an easy one to change in terms of putting in a specific fact-based measurement system that, uh, that, uh, that tracks performance. And it's not based on somebody's whim or ambiguity or subjectivity. And then the third is to is to um, um, uh, put programs in place where there is a, uh, a a value exchange model. So where you put in clear expectations of what you expect from your employees. And they can be very demanding, but doable. Very, very specific. Um, very, very specific. And then in turn, say to people, okay, if this is what we expect from you, what do you expect from us to be able to deliver on that? And that becomes a charter by which you operate. So you have a contract or charter with every employee group and in some instances with every employee that outlines clearly what the organization expects from them and clearly what the employee expects from the organization to be able to deliver on that. And the deal so for, is you know, we have, we have 30 seconds left, Andrew, okay. and I think that uh, listeners have to, you know, buy the book to obviously get this a lot more information. You know, we've touched on some of it today on the show, but I want to mention the book again, The Bully's Trap, Bullying in the Workplace. You can buy it at Amazon, Amazon? <laughs> bookstores yeah, everywhere. Amazon.com. Uh, Canada. Canada. Amazon.com. Yep. Uh, and, uh, yep. Great. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. And, well, thanks, um, Catherine. Yep. Bye-bye. We're going to take a very short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. each week for Monica Phillips and Powerful Conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author Catherine kemp Guiley. She's the author of Mountain Mantras, Wellness and Life Lessons from the Slopes. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Catherine. Oh, I appreciate it, Catherine. I love how we're both Catherines, and we spell our names the same. <laughs> we spell it the best way you can spell it, although everybody else usually spells it wrong, and I always have to correct them, but no, it is. It's a great name. You know, your book, Mountain Mantras, Wellness and Life Lessons from the Slopes. Okay, I, first, I'm, I have to preface this by saying I am a skier, a lifelong skier since four years old, so... Uh, your book makes a lot of sense, you know, taking these kinds of lessons from skiing and applying them to life situations for really health, wealth, and happiness, right? Um, so you talk, let's talk about the book. You use, as I understand it, a six-step framework, which you refer to as mantras, and these are lessons that you learn while skiing as an adult later in life. Uh, and right. Okay. Um, and then you were able to see, wow, you know, I'm learning to ski later in life. I can apply some of these things that I've learned during this process to success in life. So um, when did you start skiing? So I started skiing. The first time I ever put skis on my feet, 
I was about 24 years old. But that was for just a few days. And it's really funny because it was, it was in Fun Valley, which is where we live today, and it was the first place I ever skied. And in Fun Valley, there's the regular mountain is sort of a, the advanced mountain. And so it, when you learn how to ski at Dollar, which is the other mountain, uh, there's mostly kids there that are learning. So first of all, I applaud you, and I want to tell you how lucky you are that you've been skiing for your whole life because it is a completely different experience to learn to ski as an adult versus skiing as a kid. And, you know, as a kid, it's just more visceral. You're just doing it. Your body's absorbing things. You're watching and you're imitating. Whereas an adult, like we do with so many other things, we sort of intellectualize it. And, we, and it takes us longer. And we process all these fears and obstacles that we kind of build up ourselves. So um, I didn't really learn how to ski at 24 because I just didn't have time. I was at gra- in graduate school at the time. I never was really around mountains until we decided to move to Sun Valley about four years ago, and then I was like, okay, I better just overcome these fears and obstacles and and go for it. And that's, like you said, that point in which I was like, wow, so much of what you're doing on the mountain when you're learning is applicable to, to other areas of life. And it just all kind of came together at that time. So, Catherine, and you moved to Sun Valley. Why did you move to Sun Valley? Because uh, uh, most people who I, I'm making the assumption, if you move there, you would, might have something to do with skiing, right, or the reason for actually moving there? You know, it's interesting because my kids are at a school called the Community School here in Sun Valley, and we have noticed this incredible trend. In fact, the school had to build a new building next, last year, Our kids were in trailers for a year because there's so many families that are leaving the big cities and wanting to do something different. And and some of these families are skiers and some of them are not. Some of them are looking for, I mean, it's almost like a Thoreau-like reflection on life. Like life in the fast lane has gotten so fast. You know, my husband's a New Yorker, right? So he really, you know, uh, has experienced life in the fast lane. I've spent most of my life in Chicago. And okay, we, so you're big you know, we're city in, guys, Chicago, yeah, New York we, City, yeah, okay. We're big city people, and and then we were in the burbs, and then we had our kids, and and then we started to notice that, oh my gosh, we thought we had life in the fast lane. Our kids in the suburbs of Chicago were in the fast lane with their activities and their, you know, signing up for classes and you know going to all these different groups, and then you find out that they have to be enrolled in this because if they don't do it now, they can't do it 10 years later. I mean, it really starts to become this um, life in the fast lane for these little kids. And the reason why we decided to give Sun Valley a try is we went to a, a movie called The Race to Nowhere. And our kids were in third grade and fifth grade at the time, or maybe they were a year younger because that was when we actually got to Sun Valley, and it took about a year to make the move. We went to this movie and we saw these kids that were, you know, fourth graders with ulcers. And they were, you know, they were worried about their resumes and about how they should be doing this, that, and the other so that they could get into the right college to have the right life, to have everything be in place. But they were miserable. And we just looked at each other and said, gosh, remember how we feel as a family when we're in the mountains, when we're in nature, when we don't have the, the texts and the tweets and the, all the things going on, wouldn't it be nice to feel like that more? 
And that's not to say that, you know, you can move to a small town and everything's going to be perfect because that's, you know, that's a, a little, um, that's a false reality. Um, yeah. you know, and you Catherine, really that's a scary leap with the two kids. I mean, I can understand. Were you in Highland Park, Illinois? Is that where you were? We were very close to there. We were actually in Winneka. And okay, I grew so up in, North in Shore, Chicago, very, yeah. very competitive, right? I'm, I know North Shore, Chicago. And was there anything that you felt like, well, I mean, even though you're looking at these kids, and I understand it, like they're get preparing their resumes for, for college so they can get into an Ivy League school when they're in fifth grade, you know, still preparing in fifth grade or even younger, but... Like, we're going to do something that's going to prevent our kids? You know, did you, I mean, they're not going to be able to accomplish um, what they need to accomplish if we move to you know, a resort area, for instance. Like, there must have been a lot of soul-searching to be able to make that kind of a move. It was terrifying, for sure, um, you know, especially when we pulled into town and we're like, oh, it was you know, getting to be slack time, which is when the town is very quiet, there's only one grocery store, there's only 1,500 people in Sun Valley. There's 4,000 people in Ketchum that's next to it, but it's pretty small and it's pretty remote. And so, yes, we were absolutely terrified. We loved Chicago. And, you know, it's not that we were, like, running from everything. We just wanted to see how, and we, we were, you know, we packed up our car. We left a lot of our stuff in Chicago, and we gave ourselves sort of a trial year. And it really was the kids that would never have let us go back um, because they were, they instantly felt, you know, just more free. They could get on their bikes. They can go places. It's a lot safer um, just being in a small community. So we, because of the kids, we're like, we have to make this work. But, but also, I think, you know, for listeners, you have to understand that, and, I read, and that whole soul-searching that you brought up a minute ago, Catherine, was really important. Um, I read probably the most important book that I read before our move was John Kabat-Zinn's Wherever You Go, There You Are. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of this inner out approach to life, which I think is really important. Um, you know, again, you don't solve problems by just changing your environment. Um, but this was just in our way, sort of a, a really big kick in the pants. <laughs> and, and it's worked out and we were really happy. What, you know, Catherine, what did you see in your kids, like the changes? Because I know parents do have, especially parents living in very um, competitive suburbs or com- in cities, competitive schools, I'm sure very often think, you know, we have to get out of here and do what you did. But so uh, were there any, like, I mean, your kids love it, it sounds like, but really specific, like, in terms of their being healthier or feeling, you know, getting, you know, actually physical and mental changes in your kids? I think the biggest change that I saw was that we had more space. And when I mean that, it was just, you know, space between events, space between thoughts, and we weren't always so rushed, you know. Racing and, the burbs, and running. Yeah, yeah. In the burbs, you tend to get kind of you're you're shuttling everywhere. Whereas in Sun Valley, you know, everything's connected by a bike path. Our kids really kind of get places on their own, and um, and we don't worry too much about them. And it doesn't take very long to get there. So you know, we we used to lose a ton of time in the car, um, and just shuttling and being in a rush when we were in Chicago. So there's 24 hours in a day, and you're 20. We all have 24 hours. And we uh, we all have the same amount of time, but like you say, it's how you're spending your time. You know, either driving around the suburbs, or it also sounds like your kids 
have a, um, have the opportunity have the opportunity to be more independent. They can get out on their bikes. They can go off by themselves. Things you can't necessarily do in a city or even in in the suburbs. So, uh, to me, that would be a, a you know a big a big deal for the children in terms of being independent. Absolutely, and the school again that I mentioned was is community school. They have an outdoor program, which is really intriguing to us when we were at the school. They they take three trips a year as part of the curriculum and go out to remote areas, you know, sometimes to study, you know, snow changes, you know, so it's, you know, uh, related to global um, climate change, or sometimes they go to, you know, rock climbing and they learn, they learn about teamwork. But the outdoor program is a really important part of our kids' curriculum today. And so we've seen, like you were saying, independence is one of these factors that I think has gone way up. You just have to get past some of the, you know, the fears that, that go with that independence. But I think for the long run, it can be so beneficial. Do you ever long for the city and the culture and the, the bars and the restaurants and, you know, the energy, I guess? They, they, there's a certain energy. Well, I'll take New York City because I go back and forth from New York City to Albany, New York, which is really a medium-sized town, so it's not quite a small town, but I did grow up in one. So uh, there is that kind of electrifying energy that you get from being in a city, too, which motivates you to do a lot of different kinds of things. Oh, yeah, and I, and I totally relate to that. I was in New York within the last month, and I remember, you know, the minute you land, you know, the minute you walk out of the plane, it's like, you know, that you can yeah. feel the energy, and you can get so much done and meet so many people, and it is fantastic. I mean, New York is a fantastic city, and Chicago is fantastic, and yes, there's definitely something wonderful, you know, going on there with culture and, and diversity and all the different people that you can, that you can people watch. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important for people in the city to get out into the, the mountains and in, in the wilderness and people that are in the wilderness and the mountains to get into the cities. <laughs> okay. There has to be a integrative approach. All right, so speaking of that, let's get to some of this, what you describe in your book, six-step framework so that you can sort of, not sort of, but you can manage your life and overcome these obstacles and kind of taking skiing as the the example of how you did it. So we have mantra number one, change your lens on life. What, What does that mean? What do we do? Yeah, well, the whole, so the six steps are all put into the language of skiing just because I wanted to have a fresh metaphor for these life lessons. And I've read a lot of leadership books. I've read a ton of wellness books. Um, I'm in that And you also have an MBA, we have to, so. Right, right. So, yeah, so all of that experience working with Fortune 500 companies, you know, there's sort of these different phases of life. And, you know, Steve Jobs used to use this uh, really wonderful tool called associative fluency, which means that you can have a diverse set of experiences. Maybe they seem unrelated, but he was really good at pulling them all together and seeing the pattern and how they fit. And for me, you know, having been a management consultant for about a decade and then, you know, going, you know, really strong into nutrition education and starting a nonprofit organization, um, Nurture, then it was like, okay, what's the next phase of life? I, as we moved out to Sun Valley, I, I started a new chapter of Nurture. I started writing. I started speaking. And then it was like, okay, how does this all relate? And it all related through my lessons on the mountain. And so you mentioned change your lens on life. That's really based on positive psychology, which was a, which was a thread 
that was woven through all of those different experiences, but being on the mountain really taught me that, oh my gosh, it was how we approached our client meetings. When I was a management consultant, oh my gosh, it was how we approached our clients that were doing our nutrition programs with Nurture. Oh my gosh, it's how I approached speaking and writing. So that uh, first principle or mantra really is about how we view the world and how it's going to treat us back. Change your lens on life, number one. Okay, then we kind of emerge into number two, get some good boots on. How does that fit in? Well, it's interesting in skiing, and I, I didn't know this, and, and when I did finally learn this, and you know this, Catherine, from being a skier, skiing starts in your feet. It the really most important thing is your boots. The most absolutely. important piece of equipment is your boots, yes. Absolutely. If you don't have a good boot fit, not only is it painful, but you cannot manipulate your equipment. It's just because that's your connection. So that started to, to me to be that foundation. If you, just like if you put a house on a weak foundation, it's going to fall over. If you're skiing and your feet aren't, aren't integrated into your training, into your technique, you won't ski well. And so, I, again, I started looking at those diverse experiences. Man, you know, in management consulting, there's these steps. There's education. There's experience that make you successful. Same thing in nutrition and wellness and same thing in life. You know, as a, as a parent, you know, we seem, um, we have experiences that might, me, that might at the time seem mundane or menial, but they are the foundation of our, you know, of our family. You know, those, those little moments that you spend. I mentioned spending time in the car. I mean, that can be a foundation for, you know, really deep conversation. So I try to, in that mantra, tell everybody to really embrace that time that you spend building the foundation, whether it's experience, whether it's education, whether it seems really important at the time or very menial, just get the most out of it because it's your foundation. Yeah, Foundation, foundation, foundation. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think people have difficulty with this. I think that that's one of the things today, you know, this, and I mentioned it earlier, the racing and running and not really, uh, you know, embracing the foundation, seeing how important it is. You're talking about, like you said, being in the car with your children. I had some of the most interesting conversations with my boys driving them around in the car um, because for whatever reason we were confined, so let's take advantage of this. And, and we, we talked about a lot of personal kinds of things that maybe we wouldn't have done in another uh, another arena or another venue. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and we have to we have to really recognize how important that is. Well, number three, zoom out for the best view. How does that apply? So, yeah. Now, again, that's easy to do when you're on a mountain because you know the lift kind of taking at least one of our lifts takes us up about thirty five hundred feet at once, and so it's like you're in the you know when you first get in the chair. You know, you're in the trees and it's all, you know, just doesn't, you can't really see the bigger picture. And by the time you're, you're getting off the lift, you can see all of the surrounding towns. You can see where we are. Oh, my goodness. And for me, that became this, this ritual. And I actually would use it. It's a 10-minute lift ride to go that much distance. I would use that time as my meditation. I mean, I was sitting there. I might as well make the most of it. And there's a lot of mindfulness and yoga that's inter, um, interdispersed in the book, and then I have a chapter about it at the end. But um, I would use that time to think about how important it is to really zoom out of our circumstances. So where we are today, you know, let's take a big zoom out. You could look maybe at your whole lifetime. What, are, what am I supposed to be 
um, achieving in my lifetime. I don't want people to rush. I, I encourage people to look at life as being long. But again, why am I here on planet Earth and what are the gifts that I have to offer? And then kind of coming up with your own personal mission statement that helps you to see the bigger picture and helps, you know, helps you to see the bigger vision. It's kind of going back to the forest and the trees that we've heard from other um, you know, management consulting books or, or leadership books, but this is really about vision. Catherine, why do you think people have difficulty with that? People really have difficulty with seeing the bigger picture. We really get stuck in the everyday things that we need to do and or talk about, well, I'll think about it tomorrow, but I have to do this, and you just got to get by the day, either at work or at home or both. So I I wonder, why do I, I think people really do get stuck, and they can't see the bigger picture in the forest through the trees, and they don't take time to do that. So, I mean, you, you have your own radio show. You talk to a lot of people. Why, why do you think they get stuck there? Because it's so important. I think it, yeah. Yeah, I think today it is so difficult because we have so much information coming at us, and we feel like we might need to react to all of it. And then we have our, our digital devices. We have so many emails. We have the tweets. We just, it's, it's um, even the difference between now versus 10 years ago. I think our, our ability to create through reaction to things that are coming at us, these incredibly long to-do lists are a factor. And then you just get lost in the to-do list. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm looking at this and it's overwhelming. And then you can't kind of pick your head up. And we get into the, I get into the kid in the candy store. Oh, I've got this. Should I do this? Should I do that? As you say, because I have access to all this information and maybe the ability to do a lot of this. But you know what? I can't do it all at once, and so it's not just the things that we have to do, the, that we don't want to do, the mundane things, but it's all the good stuff, too. That's even harder to make choices or to get a different perspective. Right, and I think we have to be able to zoom out to ask ourselves the question, what is really important? And then it helps us to, you know, to be in that candy store because it is the same. Yeah, I totally relate to that, but to be able to make a good choice. Now, how does this work in terms of the family? Okay, we've kind of been talking about these mantras as the individual. But like in your own family, you have a husband, two children. Um, is this something that you talk about in the family or that, you know, we'll say you and your husband have, you know, are you in the, on the same plane, I guess, with all of these mantras? Or how does that play out in the family Oh, my gosh. I would not have written this book if it hadn't been for my family. They really helped me to kind of put this all together. In fact, um, I'm, I'm chewing over the idea of a, of a sequel, uh, Mountain Mantras Lessons from the Single Track, which will have to do with what I'm learning from trying to learn how to mountain bike, which is terrifying as well. Um, but it's, and my, my son will go out for rides, and he'll say, I've got one for you, Mom. You know, you go where you look. You know, just, you know, things like that. So my, my kids, my family definitely are involved um, in all my creative thinking. But, you know, in the book, a lot of the vision came from my grandmother. So it goes sort of back through ancestry as well as is current today. Um, family, I think, is very important. It's one of those things that you see when you zoom out. All right. So it's generation to generation. Um, plant your poles. What does that mean? Yeah, well, okay, so you remember as a skier, when you look at that big run, and it kind of looks intimidating, especially if it's really steep or maybe it has a lot of bumps on it, you, know, you look at that and you go, okay, well, how am I going to get down that whole thing? 
it's overwhelming. It's the same thing as in life when you have this huge project or a huge uh, mission that you want to accomplish. You have to break it down. And so I started to look at everything, every turn. So every time I planted my poles, that was all I needed to do. I just needed to make that little step, then the next one, you know, and then basically by the time you're at the, at the bottom, it's just many, many, many turns or many, many planting of the poles connected. And um, for me, I think it's important once you have that vision, whoa, that can be overwhelming, right, to kind of see what you might want to accomplish over a long period of time. So planting your poles is about breaking it down into manageable, achievable, measurable steps. Yeah. I think this is the first, I, I, I still remember this, taking skiing lessons at age five and the instructor saying, plant your poles. I mean, that was like, what, you know, that was a mantra so that it gets you over the fear, like you're saying, so it doesn't, this isn't this overwhelming looking down the, the slope and, you know, even as a kid, how am I going to get down here? <laughs> plant your poles. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, and embrace the yard sale. Well, that's mantra number five. Uh, so right, does, right. Yeah, a yard sale and skiing is what? Okay, so did you ever fall and all your equipment just sort of splayed everywhere? Yes. <laughs> um, it happens all the time. It's a good thing, actually, because you do want to release out of your skis, but it can be kind of comical to look at because it's like, oh, my gosh, look at this stuff everywhere. Uh, so I studied a lot of failure uh, in writing this book, and actually I studied a lot of failure in you know, in starting a nonprofit and running it, and I started a lot. Of, I studied failure in management consulting, and I remembered through this whole idea of falling that failing, which is the same thing as falling, is actually quite beneficial, and you learn so much from failure. So that mantra is really about being able to look at failure as your way to success, instead yeah. of going, "Oh, I can't believe that happened. I'm so upset about it." Say, "Hey." What did I? What did I learn from that? And how can I go forward? Yeah, I, I think that's so true. And I think any Olympic skier would tell you the same thing. Uh, very important to look at at, at your at your failures so you can become more successful. Well, we have like a minute left. Do we, we want to say this the sixth mantra, or just leave it and listeners go out and buy the book? Uh, uh, well, the sixth one has a great catchy title. So throw okay, we'll end with the, the sixth one then. Go ahead. Yeah, throw yourself down the mountain. I can just tell you that that is where it all comes together, and that is all about commitment and full engagement. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show this morning. Um, great book. Uh, we'll look forward to the next one. You kind of hinted that there's going to be another one fairly soon. Catherine Kemp Guiley, and the name of the book is Mountain Mantras, Wellness and Life Lessons from the Slopes. Uh, maybe you'll see me out there sometimes. I've never skied out west, only in the east. Oh, let me know. We'll take you down. It'll be, it'll be fun. Okay. Thanks so much, Catherine. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.